Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Before we jump into today's fascinating conversation, uh, a little bit of unfinished business from yesterday. We talked yesterday with Michael Tomaski about his uh, new book, If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved, talking about polarization. And uh, Mr. Tomaski has some uh, fixes, some an agenda, 14 uh, points, uh, half of those political, uh, such things as eliminate the Electoral College. But about half the list is uh, suggestions uh, along the social and uh, cultural front, like... Uh, an extreme ramp-up of civics education in the schools. We've got this response at the end of the program. Uh, Justin uh, writes uh, this, uh, Teaching to be good citizens is what the Boy and Girl Scouts used to do. Thanks for that, Justin. Keep that conversation coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Growing up in a gang in the city can be dark, Growing up Native American in a gang in Chicago is a whole different story. So writes uh, Ted Van Alst, who is associate professor and chair of the Native American Studies um, program. Actually, that was your former title. Uh, now associate professor and director of Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State University. Uh, the book is Sacred Smokes. Uh, the book uh, takes a trip through the unexplored part of Indian country, an intense journey full of surprises, shining a light on the interior lives of people whose intellectual and emotional concerns are often overlooked. Ted Van Alst is creative editor for Transmotion, an online journal of postmodern indigenous studies. His fiction and photography have been widely published and author of Sacred Smokes, as well as editor of Faster Redder Road, the best un-American stories of Stephen Graham Jones. It's from University of New Mexico Press, as uh, is uh, this book. Ted Van Alst, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So uh, a lot of things to talk about, including representation of Native Americans in film. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had, have a very interesting review of The Revenant. So I want to get into that and other, other films uh, later on. Sure. Uh, but I want to talk about uh, Sacred uh, Smokes. So uh, in, the, in popular imagination... Um, we, I guess, speaking for for white culture, we we don't think of Native Americans on the north side of Chicago. No, <laughs> and it's it's actually uh, the north side, uh, and to a lesser extent, the south side as well. Uh, Susan Power, another writer, uh, is <clears throat> she was north side and and also uh, lived out south. So, but the city of Chicago was a relocation site. So in the fifties. As the U.S. started to think about yet an, another way to assimilate Native people or what might be um, best for them going forward, began to offer uh, relocation assistance, uh, you know, employment, uh, set you up, you know, maybe your first month's rent. There are a variety of programs. And Chicago uh, was a major site for that. Uh, prior to that, though, there were, there had always been Native folks. Chicago is a very Native city. I mean, Chicago is obviously not a Saxon word. Um, but prior to relocation, uh, lots of folks from out this way, particularly Pueblo and Diné folks, had moved to Chicago um, from further southwest of here in Utah uh, as the um, Santa Fe and Pacific Railroad had spurs that way with Terminus in Chicago. So there was a lot of movement for Native people. Mm -hmm. But Chicago has always been a site for Native people. The, the book I'm working on right now, uh, I'm dealing via fiction specifically with 
what would be historical characters who have connections to Chicago, Pontiac, and Tecumseh, and Blackhawk. So mm. um, it's I think it's something we really need to to look at. And and as you said, with representation, um, so much of the overculture, so much of it is Hollywood. And if you know if you're not Graham Greene coming down the plains in 1890, you're not a native person. And yeah. so a lot of people don't have everyday interactions that they're even aware of with native people. Yeah. Uh, let's divert there first, sure. um, um, and then get into the, to Chicago and, and gang life. And uh, you know, there again, you don't think of Native Americans and gangs, right? <laughs> but um, so representation, I guess. First of all, what does that do to Native American people as they see their, you know, your only representation is Graham Greene, and you right? Know. Uh, you know, I mean, Hollywood uh, largely and and the media, of course, have a lot of role to play. Uh, and a lot of responsibility in how uh, the rest of America perceives Native people. And so whether you're, you're you know, looking at uh, a mascot or a cartoon um, or, uh, you know, a Hollywood film, the representation is two-dimensional. It's flat. They don't experience Native people in ways that, uh, you know, talk about us in contemporary realms. And so you're forever sort of a victim of history. And the representation is so deep and thorough that there's an expectation of how you're going to look phenotypically or whatever. And Native people are the most exogamous group in the country. We marry mm-hmm. out continuously. And so our, our, our physical presentation is a spectrum, you know, from blonde hair, blue eyes to, you know, to a- African-American phenotypes because all of those people are Native people. Mm-hmm. But there is an expectation. Have you have you butted up against this? Is that uh... Uh, you know? I mean, you can you can see us particularly in social media. You'll get these threads, and somebody had written a story the other day. Well, what happens when you're native, but you don't look native enough? Mm-hmm. Uh, the expectation is that everybody is sort of dark and has long hair, and you know whether it's Pocahontas for women or I keep hate. I, I love Graham Greene, but he's just, it's just an easy go-to because mm-hmm. everybody can picture him in Dances with Wolves, right, with, a, you know, full feathers and, and buckskin and everything like that. So you have people who assume you are one thing or another, and depending on where you live, your ethnicity can be fluid, uh, the one that other people assign to you. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you're, you're a Latino or something, particularly if you're mixed. Yeah. You, know, you see that a lot. Yeah. Uh, there has been, uh, I guess, over time, um, I, I think, an effort to portray Native Americans in film more accurately, mm-hmm. I suppose. I mean, you, you go back to the old Westerns, and quite often Native Americans are portrayed by some <laughs> guy from New York, right? Salminio. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who's Paul in, Newman, they've all yeah, done yeah, it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so you have, have that. And then uh, I was reading... Um, about a book that you uh, contributed a couple chapters to, Seeing Red, mm-hmm. representations of, of Native American in, in Hollywood. And you talked about a couple of uh, films that I think were trying to be a little more nuanced, but perhaps failed. These yeah. are films headlined. Uh, Burt Reynolds is portraying <laughs> Navajo Joe. Right, right. For ex- Let's talk about that film a little bit. So uh, it's interesting <clears throat> now that you mention it, I, I hadn't really thought about those two films I keyed in on in sort of hopes of, of like really examining, you know, how they represent Native folks. Both of those films are uh, uh, Italian in, in, in that uh, The Savage Innocence with Anthony Quinn was written by Franco Salinas, who is a, uh, an Italian uh, screenwriter. 
and uh, Navajo Joe is made by Sergio Corbucci. Uh, and and Bert thought he was going to be a big star. He had the wrong Sergio. He thought he was talking to Leone, but it was actually <laughs> Corbucci. He's like, I'll never do that again. Uh, but, hmm. but that film is really interesting. It has these sort of moments in it, and there's a scene in the bar and, in, in a tavern. And, of course, you know, Burt Reynolds is a hero. Navajo Joe is a hero. But they ask him what he wants, and he points to the sheriff's star, and he says that. I want that. And they're like, we would never give an Indian a, a sheriff's badge. And he's like, why not? He said, I was born here. My father was born here. My father's father was born here. I'm an American. Where was your father born? And he's like, well, Scotland. He's like, give me that. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's this real moment where you can see the Italians looking at um, uh, their you know, American treatment of, of, of Native people and how that works. And so we had this moment in the 60s where these films become sort of the site for European aspirations to revolution, to thinking of the world in different ways. And they use Native characters to do that. Mm. So within the Spaghetti Westerns, you had this, this political stripe that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So this is, this, this is Italians viewing American culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> using Native Americans to, 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 to do that. Um, so, uh, do you, do you consider that at that time progress? I don't know. I think, well, yeah, well, it's interesting because you, they sort of descend from these German films, which were, were very romanticizing of native people. If you know anything about Germans, there's the Vinatu story, which is this, this guy who comes over from Germany and becomes blood brothers with an Apache guy. And so it's like all these adventures written by this guy who never even came to America. Right. He was a he was a petty, actually German forger. Right. Carl mm-hmm. Mai is this guy. But they make all of this money from these films are wildly popular and they're very historical in nature. So it's 1880s, 70s, 80s. Uh, but the money that flows from that comes to the Italians and they're like, well, you should make these Westerns, too. And Cinecittà, the studio in Rome, is uh after Hollywood in the Western world is the second biggest soundstage uh, in, you know, Gangs of New York was filmed there. It's a really massive uh, studio system in, in Rome. They made over 400 films in the space of like eight, 10 years. And so in making these films, um, because they run through the cycle so quickly, they go, you know, the Leone and then they sort of the political and then the satire. But through through all of these films, um, they're working out a lot of their own issues and using a native character. But because of that two dimensionality and the characters are not actually native, they can put anything they want into them. Yeah. I want to talk about Dances with Wolves. You've, you've referenced Graham Greene. That, and that's the great the, epic. Yeah. The great, <laughs> and I guess for me, that's, you know, I... I see Graham Greene, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's who I see. A wonderful actor, by the way. Yeah. Um, it, I think that is, was seen at the time, at least, a, as a big step forward, at least in the, the, the mainstream culture, mm-hmm. that uh, here we have uh, Indian actors portraying Indians. It's sympathetic, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a white man um, learning Indian culture and, and seeing himself now as a part of that, that culture. I yeah. know what, what, what you think of the film. Well, I mean, Dances with Wolves is that sort of that great epic of revisionist Westerns, right? That's what they call those in academia and beyond. And the revisionist Western is something that tries to um, sort of, I don't want to say rehabilitate, but just, you know, revise the narrative. And so there, in, in that film, you have this engagement with 
uh, with native characters portrayed by native people in in hopefully accurate ways. But you know, there's these, all these apocryphal stories that, like, if you listen to the language in Lakota, it's uh, there's male and female ways of speaking, and they're like all the men speak like women because you know the right. advisor was a, right. was a woman. That's how she taught them. But in that film, you start to get. Uh, characters, you know, you start to get, you know, they're they're maybe a little bit flat, but you know, like wind in his hair stands as sort of the, you know, the savage type, and Graham Greene is a medicine man. He's a little more mystical, but there are a lot of things going on in there that, in watching it for the eight hundredth time, because they teach the film that, like, you know, uh, when 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 Kevin Costner and and and, and Mary is it O'Donnell. Uh, Mary McConnell, McConnell. Yeah. yeah. So when they get together, and 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 Graham Greene is talking with his wife, and the people are talking, and uh, they think they think it's a good match, and Graham Greene just kind of looks at her and goes, "Well, it makes sense. They're both white." You know, you're like, well, "Did they write that in there?" Because <laughs> it's it's really fun. If you know Graham Greene, he's hilarious, yeah. right? Uh, so this film does this sort of thing, starts to make character i think graham green should have gotten an oscar for that film um but a, a lot of what happens in that not to digress but I, I i wrote about how uh chief dan george uh they wanted to nominate him for an academy award i think it was for the outlaw josie wales and the old guys in the academy were like well he, he's an indian <laughs> i'm like yeah but it's like 1875 mm-hmm. i mean he's an actor yeah he's so good that you you just by your own admission don't even realize that he's acting mm. so dances with wolves is sort of one of these films that purports to do this thing but if you you watch the film to the end if you can get through the epic director's cut and 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 if you remember the theatrical cut what happens is uh kevin costner becomes the greatest indian of all time Right after spending his summer vacation with folks who've mm. been doing this for forty thousand years, Kevin Costner picks it up, and he sort of rides off into the sunset with him and and his white bride. And if you're unclear as to what's happening, the, the you know the intertitle comes down and says, "In a few years, all the Indians would be gone." Mm-hmm. Right, and so the film ultimately is is uh, is a fantasy that comes from Last of the Mohicans, where settlers become the native people and the native people disappear and if you look at the long arc of what america wants to do they're really uncomfortable with the native people in the city with native people in the suburbs showing up at award shows this is not a thing that they want to see because it reminds them that they're settlers on the land mm-hmm. it sort of removes their claims and so it's always been a problem mm. so that's what that film does ultimately. So, so so by the end uh they're erasing native americans yeah that, yeah so if you really watch it yeah and you put it together you're like okay kevin costner lives but rolling over the faces of the native people left behind are the words telling you that they are going to disappear in a few years and their way of life is gone Hmm. interesting uh so you teach this film i do yeah yeah yeah. a a lot of themes uh, there um let's see now that I wanted to pull up this quote, the uh, the website has uh, crashed, but I think I can. <laughs> uh, so you um, uh, you did a review of The Revenant, mm. and uh, there's uh, there's a quote here. I'm trying to get to to that uh, that really struck me. You you say, well, there's some good things. You know, they're trying to they're they're trying to be respectable to to Native Americans and the history. Um, you say I've used this quote before, but again, nothing about us without us is for us. Mm-hmm. 
What do you mean by that? And that comes from the side of um, of the Protestant side of public housing in Belfast. Does it really? It's painted on the wall really? there. And I, I was over there. It was our 20th anniversary. So I took my wife, went to Ireland in the spring. And um, and we did the tour. And, and that really stuck with me, you know. And I've, I've used it in other places because it's applicable. So... When you have a film, whether it's Dances with Wolves or, or The Revenant or whatever it happens to be, um, it, it's not it's not biased. So our representation is always going to be from someone else's viewpoint, even when you have people on set, when you have advisors. If you don't have Native people above the line, as they say, right, the, the writers or directors, ultimately you have a film about us. It's not necessarily for us. It's written for a larger audience. And while The Revenant does those same kind of things that, that Dances with Wolves did, and it brings in advisors and it brings in um, people to sort of help them get it right, that's a movie about Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, the title of the article is Dances with Oscars, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. for me, that was the moment where I'm like, Leo's giving it his all. And if you've seen the film, you're like, this is like Oscar candy, mm-hmm. you know? And so they do this film, they raise the concerns, they do the the right things, but ultimately that movie is about Leonardo DiCaprio. It's mm-hmm. about his character and, and Bridger and, and all these sort of Western mountain men. And, you you know, the moments of, of Native representation can be can be sort of read and and used in certain ways for you know transgressive moments for you know what's happening on screen but you, you that's what we do we call it the red lens we apply sort of an, a native lens to mm-hmm. sort of read these like where are we in this where are our stories yeah and until we're making those stories you know directors like jeff barnaby or whomever we're talking about they're ultimately not for us. Hmm. By the way, parenthetically, um, uh, I guess I'll reveal a little by bias. Uh, hopefully, it's unconscious. Mm-hmm. When, when you said uh, you and your wife went to went to Belfast, you took the tour, right? Yeah. Uh, I had a little moment, not meaning to be offensive at all. Yeah. Of wait a minute, Ted Van Alst is a is a Native American. Yeah. And Native Americans don't do the tour to Belfast, right? right? So, so I've, you know, I've got a cultural. Yeah. Uh, bias ingrained, you know, uh, in there, and I'm guessing I'm representative of. Yeah, I, quite I a mean, few people, you know, it's it's interesting because for me, the site of where all this comes from is Europe, so it's fascinating to go back there and see how did we get to where we're at in America and where does it all start from, and so doing research in the archives in in whether I'm in Rome or at the Karl May Museum in Germany, it's always kind of. It's it can be startling, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of to sort of look at that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the same thing, uh, you know, as urban natives or whatever. But native people are everywhere. Native people were and working with some folks in the UK, and you had people uh, heading over there. You had uh, Wild West shows that toured Europe. You had people who stayed. Uh, you have a lot of uh, native folks in Germany who you know did a tour in the service and were like. I'd rather be here. Things are a lot better for us here than they are back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the American Indian population is is diasporic, right? There's your your phrase that pays in academia for the moment, but but it's a it's a global thing. And yeah, we we can go on vacation. Yeah, you're right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess uh, what <laughs> what produces that view? Is it popular culture? Is yeah, it the movies. It I guess? really is. is. Yeah. I think that it is, and it's that tie 
to the reservation that unless you're on the reservation right and that you you know you look a certain way how can you even be native anymore mm -hmm. and even even the germans who who just you know this this fascination and love for indian people they have that bias too they're like we haven't really been indian since you know the 1890s yeah because they can't see you in contemporary ways and for me native people are are you know not to essentialize but some of the most resilient people in the world i mean if you think you've had an empire trying to remove you for for a half of a millennium right now, uh, but yet we're still here and adapting and doing all these things. That that should be the the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll continue that story uh, talking about the the book Sacred Smokes. Before we get to that, go to a break and then get to that. I want to talk about uh, continue this thread on on film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, what would be films that uh, that, that you would would recommend? Uh, let me ask you about uh, the Sherman Lexi film uh, Smoke Signals, which which. I loved. Yes, it's a great. I, I felt like it was a glimpse into a world yeah. that I don't live in, and yeah. you know, a lot of humor. You know, it, was, yeah. um, it kind of works like a like a Pixar film. There's sort of native humor, and then there's humor for the overculture. You know, and talking about about that film, I was like, it's it's going to hit because it's a classic American film. I mean, if you ever want to do a film, you know, the classic American film is the road film, and within this road film is a buddy film. Yeah. So those are two. You know, whether you're 48 Hours or Beverly Hills Cop or whatever you're doing, those are kind of surefire things. So the premise is there and the potential is there. But then, you know, the writing, the humor, that's sort of like you said, that glimpse into life. That's a moment where, yeah, sure, they're leaving from the reservation, but they go to Phoenix and they're and, and they're not riding horses to get there. You know, it's a right. very contemporary film and it does really well. The, the film that Chris Eyre did after that, Skins, didn't do as well, and it, but it was very Native-specific, and Roger Ebert was like, this is a better film than Smoke Signals. Mm. It's too bad it's not getting the same reception. Yeah, I missed that one. I'll have to go back and yeah. catch that one. So you, do you agree with With Roger Ebert's Ebert, assessment? Yeah, on that, uh, well, the, it's based on a novel by the great Adrian Lewis, uh, who just walked on recently, and... Um, it's very specific. It's set in Pine Ridge. Adrian wrote it when he was teaching at Oglala Lakota College. And it's it's a lot darker. The novel is super dark. The film is darker, but it's about it, – it, it works with those sort of, you know, reservation issues. And it has, you know, uh, Graham Greene is in it. He does a great job right, as a yeah. Vietnam vet. Um and the, the the film is ultimately sort of about redemption and and family love and things like that, and it does really well. It's mm -hmm. really it's it, it's a it's a it's a good film. I think you have to see them both because they both do different things. Okay, yeah. By the way, have you have you met Graham Greene? Do you? I haven't. Okay, that'd be cool. We, we've we've talked so much <laughs> about him. Um, I, I I just love him. He's just uh, he he seems like somebody I would like to meet. Like yeah, to know, right. Yeah. yeah. Sense of humor, you know, fun. Seems like he'd be a fun. When guy. they did the film uh, Thunderheart after that, he said, "I was really excited." He said, uh, it, "I got to work on a film." He said, "It was the first time in a long time I got to go to work every day, and I got to wear pants." Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> got to wear pants. There you go. <laughs> By the way, uh, smoke signals. Um, just the little details. I mean, I, I don't know where Sherman Alexi got this. Whether it's from a real incident, but the. The lady whose car will only go backwards. Oh, yeah. Know. Yeah. Just, I mean. <laughs> just a little fun things, you know. Uh, 
a lot of those, yeah, a lot of, and a lot of those things too are are class and economically mm-hmm. driven. You know, I had uh, I had a car, no first, no third, no fifth yeah, gear. Okay. You know, things like that, and and you just make do. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, uh, you, you don't want to to truck and stereotypes, but I think sometimes we're the original recycler, renewer, upcycle, right. remaking of things because you just out of necessity right. have to do that. Before we go to break, we've uh, I've brought up Sherman Alexi. You you wrote a, a piece in Electric Lit um, about Sherman Alexi, and uh, of course, people who don't know, I think people probably do, uh, accusations of uh, sexual harassment uh, against Sherman Alexi. And a- as as the Me Too movement rolls forward, then uh, Sherman Alexi gets erased from you know from social media and uh, you know from appearances, and he's he's mm-hmm. lying low. Uh, you were amusing on what what does that mean to not have Sherman Alexi um, as I guess the foremost representative of Native American culture? He was, mm-hmm. was kind of the go to guy, right? right. Yeah, I mean, and then, then what does it mean to to not have him now? Yeah, yeah. yeah it means he's not on the Daily Show anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The thing that really struck me in that, and and I was you know sort of reluctant to venture into that, but uh, some some women writers were like, no, you should write this. You know, we trust you to write this. So I felt a really big responsibility in doing that. And the thing that struck me the most was that it wasn't the absence necessarily of Alexi and his work, his voice and all that. It, it was that there was no, that it created such a void in the, in the overculture and in classrooms. And this isn't in every classroom, but in, you know, most classrooms, kids in high school are reading, you know, the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. Uh, Sherman Lexi was the only native writer or the only, you know, diversity tick in a box for most kids growing up. Um, and, when you don't have a really full uh, fleshed out sort of um, curriculum or a group of writers to work with, when you lose that one, right, that's the problem. You should have a lot more than one native writer. There's a, you know, there's a, just a ton of native lit out there and on a variety of subjects for a variety of reading levels. Um, Debbie Reese's American Indian in, in, in children's literature is a great site for, for YA emerging lit. And she reads everything right mm-hmm. and so um, she's looking at representation and misrepresentation and appropriation and so the resources are there and classrooms whether they're college or or you know high school should have a, a lot more native lit than they do so I, w- I was just kind of keying in on these are the things that happen and, and and did it that sort of journalistic way but but the question I wanted answered is why does it leave such a hole why haven't you been looking at all these great women writers and all of the work that they've been doing for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess now is an opportunity. Do, do, do you think that think, other writers will come to the fore? Yeah, I'm, and I'm really hopeful. Um, you know, we talk about the Native Renaissance and then another, you know, another iteration, another wave. And in this one, I'm particularly excited. We're seeing. Uh, a lot more women's voices uh, come to the fore. We're seeing uh, urban stories. Um, you know, I've been working on this book for a long time, but uh, you know, as it starts to to roll out, you have Tommy Oranges there, there, uh, Therese Myatt's um, uh, Heartberries, and you have Brandon Hobson's Where the Dead Sit Talking, nominated for a National Book Award. So we're really, I think, in this moment, seeing 
um, all these all, all these books and works from Native people being nominated for awards, you know, because they should be on their merits and their literary strengths. Um, but they're not they're not reservation. But those none of those stories I'm talking about are reservation based. They're they're kind of everywhere. You know, Brandon's in Oklahoma. Teresa's from Seabird Island, you know, on the other side in, in British Columbia. Uh, but her her stories aren't necessarily set right there on the reservation either. So it's much more fluid. And I was talking with a colleague last night and he's like, why is that? I've been thinking about this for a while, particularly the urban stories. Well, a- after relocation, it takes a couple of generations for people to kind of get their bearings. And so now you are starting to see like Oakland was a huge relocation city. So Tommy Orange's book is set there. It's all it's, a, you know, it's an urban native book. And so I think as we kind of accommodate, you know, this into our lives and where we live and what our new sort of territories are, now we can begin to map them and mm-hmm. talk about them. Yeah. By the way, just before we leave this, um, why do you think that happens? It does happen from time to time. Uh, you know, A. Sherman Alexi uh, arises, very mm-hmm. talented, mm-hmm. obviously, and uh, very plugged in and, and media uh, friendly, you know. Yep. Uh, becomes the go-to guy, sort of sucks the oxygen, as mm-hmm. we've been talking about. I suppose that says more about the, the, the mainstream culture, right? The, yeah. the American culture. I have and, a theory about that. Okay. I've written about that. Since arrival, since European arrival, they've always ever only wanted one chief. They've only wanted one person that they can talk to. And that, that sort of drive to have one chief sign off on the treaties, one, one person to sort of be the arbiter of what's acceptable and what's not is what we have now. So, like I said, America can't really accommodate this idea that there's this vibrant and diverse and and really far-flung Native population in the country. They want that one chief on the one reservation that they can go to with their questions who can take care of everything they need to know. Because to engage with Native people more broadly upsets the narrative of the sort of vanishing Indian. Hmm. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, Sacred Smokes, which is uh, the latest book from Ted Van Alst. Um, Here's uh, a bit of the synopsis. Growing up in a gang in the city can be dark. Growing up uh, Native American in a gang in Chicago is a whole different story. Hmm. Let's hear a bit of that story uh, when we come back. More following this break. Did you know that your student may already be in a program that prepares kids for college? The Gear Up grant from the U.S. Department of Education provides funds that allow middle and high school students to get a taste for university education. The program targets schools where more than half of the student body is on free or reduced lunch plans, giving low-income students access to college that might not otherwise be available. Students begin in seventh grade and remain with the program into their first year in college. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music. 
from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Ted Van Alst. Uh, he's Associate Professor and Director of Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State University and is Creative Editor for Transmotion, an online journal of postmodern Indigenous studies. His fiction photography has been widely published. He's the author, most recently, of Sacred Smokes. I want to jump into talking about uh, Sacred Smokes. Let me just read once again. Uh, growing up uh, in a gang in the city can be dark. Growing up Native American in a gang in Chicago is a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And as we've been talking about, this isn't the story usually portrayed, at least in popular media. Right. We, in, the, in a popular conception, Native Americans are on the reservation. Mm-hmm. Not in the cities, right? Right. Maybe we could reiterate that. Um, Native Americans in the cities, because of relocation in some cases. Yep. And I guess just natural migration or whatever. Natural migration, economic opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is a question sometimes authors don't like or kind of coy about. I I know that you'd, I guess you'd you'd probably address this because I've I've asked you before we went on the air. Mm -hmm. Um, Autobiography in this? Oh, yeah. In this book? Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Write what you know, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, there you go. Um, so this, uh, this fellow, young man, um, alcoholic father, mm-hmm. um, in, in a gang, right? And, yeah. And this is uh, Chicago. Right. North side the, of Chicago. The, the tough streets of Chicago. By the, uh, Cubs fan. How did, White Sox fan. White Sox fan. Yes, north sir. side. Right there. Yeah. Okay. I'm okay. on the north side, but I, yeah, the, the Cubs were a terrible team for years and I just got cynical. I was like, we're never going to get a championship. And I didn't, you know, I just had this moment where I committed. I liked the White Sox when I was a kid, played Little League Baseball. I was on the White Sox. I played a, an all-star game in Comiskey Park. And so okay. it was just, yeah, I like the White Sox. I, I thought I got it wrong. Uh, the Cubs are on the north side. Cubs are up on the but north side. you were rooting side. for the south side. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the Cubs were bad for so many years. They really so, were. So many years. Yeah. My, I just parenthetically, and my <laughs> listeners know this, my dad was was a lifelong Cubs fan. Oh, is that right? And uh, died, unfortunately, before oh, they won their finally. finally won. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's in heaven rooting and, yeah. and, and having a great time. Yeah. Um, so so I guess that, you know, that, I don't know how it is being a Northsider and rooting for the Southside White Sox. Does that get, get, get you in trouble? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it wasn't, growing up, it wasn't a big part of our lives. And it really was something that I didn't come to till later when, I actually, I grew up by Wrigley Field and, uh, you know, I sort of watched my neighborhood get gentrified and changed uh, with all these sort of, you know, Cubs didn't have those fans until they started winning and people were moving in from the suburbs and state schools in Iowa and Michigan and places like that. It really changed sort of the nature of the neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. And like I said, I just like the White Sox. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you uh, quote an Indian agent, 1854, who wrote, All bands of the Sioux have already received their presence with a great appearance of friendship, excepting the, uh, I, I'm not sure how to say, the Minikuju, mm-hmm. the uh, Blackfeet, the Honopapas. 
Um, the former band are daily expected at the fort, will gladly receive their annuities, but the Blackfeet and Hunapapas still persist in refusing any annuities. They're constantly violating all the stipulations of the treaty. This Indian <laughs> agent is complaining that these particular bands are, they're not playing ball. The Siasapas and the Hunkapapas, yeah, yeah we're, who are historically and traditionally closely allied bands of the Lakota people, of the Chedi Shakuin. Yeah, and and so this, this it, it ends up being a very good introduction <laughs> to this story. Tell us why. I'm Siasapa. So You're Siasapa. Blackfeet okay. Sioux. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. yeah, we're 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 Blackfoot Sioux, and uh, and it is uh, you know you gotta you gotta kind of dig, but there's some there's a lot to be to to be said and to be sort of like you said teased out of that. I'm glad that you picked up on that. I mean, that wasn't just a sort of historical reference. It, it's more inside, for people who know who I am, they, they know, you know, that that's, that's who I am. And mm-hmm. so that references me directly, yeah. Yeah. but the people who, who have, you know, read the book and they did the same thing you did. They said, this passage sort of launches us into this book, and, yeah. you know, and really just drops us in the, right. gives us some expectation, but not quite what we expected. So. Also goes back to what we've been talking about. Doesn't fit the narrative. What, what, the narrative. Right. The, the narrative which was being imposed yeah. by, by violence on, right. on the Native and, Americans. And not everybody was buying into it. And so those two bands, Siasapa and Hunkpapa, uh, went to Canada. If you recall when Sitting Bull went to Canada, those were the two bands that went to Canada sort of after all of these battles and wouldn't come back. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's actually a book uh, called They Never Surrendered, the story of the Lakota in Canada. They're, the band... Uh, the Siaspa band that I'm from, that, that is my understanding, is is a band that just went and never came back. Mm-hmm. And so there are now two reserves up there. Um, uh, Wood Mountain and, and, and uh, Moose Jaw is another reserve up that way. Yeah. And that's what that refers to. Yeah. So, yeah, there wasn't this sort of, oh, the Americans are here, let's head for the reservation, and people just kind of you know packed up their stuff and moved. There was resistance for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, continuing in some ways to today, I don't know what, uh, yeah, I mean the resistance, I mean, you can't really fight militarily against a nuclear armed empire. That's kind of, you know, uh, but resistance is continuous. When I teach literature, I talk about, let's look, you know, it's the easy read for students. Where are native voices resisting? Where is the artist resisting? Where is the resistance in that? It's a continuous theme of not being assimilated. You know, the the native nations predate the U.S. The U.S. is a baby compared to the native nations that have been here for thousands and thousands of years. And so I always do a timeline for students. I'm like, this is this is the Western Hemisphere, tens of thousands of years. And when you look at the the U.S. is just a tiny blip on that. So people understand themselves in in sovereign ways via the culture, via the language, via spiritual traditions that well predate the current political system. Yeah. Uh, I love the, the the opening scene. The the, the first story is called "Old uh, Gold Couch," <laughs> and the father is uh, sort of uh, you know, needling the son. <laughs> He's he, he says, "What's the deal there, Fiddy?" He's calling him. This is a new nickname, I guess, right? Yeah. And uh, it's because the son's uh, using the for fifty, right? Yeah. Fiddy, and uh, uh, the father says, "You dress like a Puerto Rican. You talk like you're black." Yeah. Uh, this is the son, I guess, trying to. Fit in with the the culture around him, and well, it's it's grow it, it is the culture around him. I mean, the way people talked. I, I remember when I went to went to boot camp, people were like, "Where are you from, man? You know, why do you talk like that? You know?" And it's just 
the 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 neighborhood uh you know that this is set in is a very uh, multicultural multiracial neighborhood and the kids kind of all talk like each other and so it's a it's a mixture of you know you'll have the occasional sort of you know native slang that goes in there it's african american inflected it's you know it has puerto rican intonations mexican intonations this is really representative the language is really to me growing up was just like that's who we all were together. And so we all had a particular way of talking. But the generation, our parents were like, and they're still like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't matter what color you are. Uh, kids still talk in ways that make parents go, yeah. what does that even mean? Right, right. Yeah. They're trying to differentiate themselves yeah. from parents in, in, in yeah. one case. Uh, everybody accepting of everybody? What uh, you, you throw oh, you know, yeah. in the popular culture, you, you get whites and blacks and you Puerto Ricans or whatever. Yeah. The unusual would be uh, Native American in that mix. Yeah, uh, we just we love the heck out of each other, and and in the ways that when you have to reconstitute family and you make family, um, it was merciless. We just teased each other and made fun of each other, but there was never real spite. You know, uh, I try to de- deal with that here in the in the second book. I kind of remember these moments now, not as nostalgic, but as like that was kind of mean, you know, you probably shouldn't. And where does that come from? And I'm, I'm thinking about a day we were playing Cowboys and Indians with BB guns and pellet guns. And mm. I had, a, I had an old, you know, not very good weapon and all the white kids though, they had really good ones. Mm. So I, you know, I try to like work through that in that way, but um, in those kind of neighborhoods um, where we grew up, uh, just uh, it, we're just all in there together. You yeah. know, it's more a class thing than a color thing. Yeah. By the way, playing Cowboys and Indians, you were the Indian? <laughs> Always. Okay, all right. I, in, in a poli- you know, politically correct world, yeah. uh, I guess some of us trying to live in, you'd reverse it. But yeah. I guess it, you were... Not in the 70s, the, man. Not, not you in the were 70s, the Indian. Okay. You were the Indian. Okay. Uh, with not as good weapons, mm-hmm. I guess. Okay. Um, by the way, the uh, in the book, the, the young man's kicked out by his mother, mm-hmm. sent to live. Go find your father. Mm-hmm. He's he's somewhere in Chicago, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and the father has two rules. Yeah. I remember the second one, which is uh, don't cheat on your girlfriend. Yeah. I can't remember the first rule. Uh, but he just has two don't, rules. Don't right? get busted because I'm not coming That's to get right, you. That's right. Don't get busted because I'm not coming to find you. <laughs> That's right. Um, what a period. This is uh, at the end of um, the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. one of the stories. Um Let's see. I wonder. Uh, maybe just have you read this. This is just the, uh, the just a, a paragraph and a half here. Okay. Is that okay? Oh sure. Just that uh, second half of the page. Oh okay. Oh, when we were talking about, um, Visner's quote, and this is where, um, he can't go out and play until he learns the Lord's Prayer at like four, I think, years old. Um, and so the father makes him memorize this thing, but it has this effect uh, throughout his life that he now has this this sort of you know this this photographic memory, this ability to recall via you know uh, visuality these particular things. And we're talking about a, a Visner quote uh, and how it appeared on page one thousand nine hundred eighty three of the two thousand one edition of the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism, and whether I agreed with it or not, and 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 
was what made my eyes a little misty. When in my teens, I first read a mention of Our People of Blackfoot Sioux on page 423 of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and how, just like in my grandpa's stories, he told me when I was eight, our people had to leave their chief because he no longer spoke for the people. That memory of my old man and our time together is something I never got to tell him about or how I lost that memory because after I went to college, I found out there were people called Native Americans and I didn't realize I was one or knew any or would become one and that he was one too because where we came from, folks were just Indians back then and we did what we did and that was good enough. Thanks, Pop. Hmm. You give me the emotional passage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that really struck me, um, this idea that, uh, you know, when you went to college, you found out that you were a Native American. I never heard that term before. Yeah. Yeah. Native American was like a, I just didn't hear that term growing up. They were like, you were just Indian or, you know, you were a Sioux, you know, to other tribal people or whatever. And so the concept of Native American in an academic way was really something new. I hadn't heard the term. And so there was a lot of, you know, sort of baggage that, that went around with it because i mean you know as a kid uh you know a teenager you know carried around a copy of god is red with me when i was in the navy uh you know i had, I had a, a picture of russell means and a picture of dennis banks on my locker where other guys had pinups and stuff like mm-hmm. that i mean these are the guys who sort of got me through and, and 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 kept me focused but i hadn't heard the term native american until you know, I went to college and took a Native American literature. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I saw the flyer. I was like, oh, I want to read that book. And I'm yeah. like, what is this? Oh, okay. Native American literature. That's, that's who I am, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Is, is, is something changed then in, in, in terms of, you know, there's a broader understanding of what that, I guess, in the pop, in, in the mainstream culture, mm-hmm. in uh, Indian culture, what, what does, you know, just that... What is the you know, Native, Native American, American versus Indian versus Sioux versus yeah. you know? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of layers, and and people you know will talk about it online and uh, moderate. A, you know, I'm a pay, I created a page, Native American issues page, with like twenty three thousand people, and you'll you'll see in the discussions people say it's Native American. You need to say Native American, and I'm like you can't lose sight of the fact that treaties are made with American Indians. In the Constitution, it doesn't mention Native Americans. This is a, this is a newer term uh, put together that, you know, is not PC, but it's a way of, I think, not saying Indian because they are worried about offending people. But the word Indian is Indian, Indian, Indian. That's the word. And it's a legal term. Mm-hmm. So American Indian, and for a generation, particular generations, um, but you don't you don't see it as much. You'll hear Indian Indian was sort of in group speak. People just say Indian, or but mostly people just say Native. And and you know when students ask, well, how, what do I do? I'm like, talk about the person's tribe. Mm. You know, give their tribal nation, or better yet, just talk about them as a person. Yeah, you can say he. You right. can say this guy. You don't have to say this Native guy. Stop saying this Native American. We're in a Native American literature class. I get that the guy's going to be Native. Just say the lead character or whatever you're talking about. Right. Stop. Yeah. You don't have to qualify that. Yeah. Because by the same turn, if you continue, if you did the opposite and you were like, well, I guess I'll go down to the white car dealership and have that one white <laughs> technician change my oil, you know, it, it, it's really awkward. Right? Yeah. Yes, uh, that, that's a that's a good technique. Mm-hmm. Reverse it. Yeah, and, think about what see that if, if, like. if it feels ridiculous, then maybe it's ridiculous in the exactly in the other way around. Um, 
it's interesting, but you know, a lot of adventures, of course, in uh, in this book. And and again, growing up in a gang in the city could be dark. Growing up Native American in a gang in Chicago is a whole different story, right? <laughs> um, and you're telling, you know, in at least in part, your story. Um, I can't believe you found a paragraph with no naughty words in it. This book's got a lot of naughty got, words. <laughs> be warned. Be warned. There's a lot of naughty words, yes. I worried about that for the radio. But, yeah. Uh, um, in the end, uh, this young man, you know, now, you know, a young adult, he talks about uh, going to his lifeless job. Yeah. Right? All of us have to grow up at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of us, I guess, don't get out and you know, die in the, in the violence or whatever. Um, but you, you carry something with you, right? You carry, obviously, that's, you know, that's the, one of the thrusts of the book here. You're, mm-hmm. you're carrying all these experiences, your culture, your family, all of that you carry with you. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're going to do the emotional, I'm pretty emotional guy, so I'm trying to, you know, but it it does, it goes back to, you know, when I first talked to my grandfather about these things, you know, my grandpa was like, you know, I was eight and he's like, look, we're Blackfoot Sioux. He used the Sioux where he said, we're, we're Blackfoot Sioux and you need to be proud of that. And, And I mean, he wasn't, he, he, he was like my dad. They just didn't talk a lot. That generation didn't talk a lot, but he told me stories. Even my aunties are like, Wait, he told you that he never, he, he talked to you all the time. And so I think sometimes in a family, you know, the, the grandparents would be like, that's the one, tell him the stories. Cause he'll remember them. Mm-hmm. And so I've always sort of, I've always held on to that. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a broader sentiment. You know, we are who we are because of who we were and we will be who we're going to be because of who we are now. And you can't, let go of those things. You should not be ashamed of those things. You need to remember who you are and, and how it, how it grounds you. And I used to think about that. You know, I would look down at my hands, my hands are all tattooed and you know, uh, they're kind of fixed now, but there's little gangbanger tattoos and stuff under there. And, and going through life, I would always sit, sit on my hands at job interviews and stuff. Cause people just mm-hmm. didn't have those tattoos mm-hmm. back in the day, unless you were inside or you were in a carnival, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. pretty much that's not a job for somebody trying to in, in the financial district. But it's really important to always remember where you're from. And when I, I do workshops for Native students, I'm like, you you have something that the overculture doesn't have. You have something you can always rely on. It's it's never a hindrance. It's a strength. And so celebrate those strengths and who you are. Yeah. Uh, you It's it's a new program at Portland State, mm-hmm. right? Uh, indigenous Cultures. Oh, Indigenous Nation Studies. Indigenous Nation Studies. So you get a major in this. Yes. Right? What uh, for the students in that in that major, what do you hope they come out with? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Indigenous Nation Studies, Native Studies is a relatively new discipline. It's very interdisciplinary. I teach film, literature, uh, spirituality within that context. We have environmental studies, traditional uh, medicines, and plant knowledge. Um, you know, the thing about Native Studies is it's very broad. It's a national study. And people talk about ethnic studies as sort of the experience of minorities in America. Native Studies is the experience of Native people with, you know, America on Natives, right? So there's an overlay here. But we still have all of our history, uh, law, medicine, all of, all of those things. So it's a really broad and wide discipline. And what happened, in particular when I was at Montana, is a lot of folks 
uh, would double major or would minor in Native Studies because uh, if you, you know, hope to work with Native populations, uh, whether it's Native students or elders or whatever it happens to be, or do business in Indian country, you know, you need to know these things. So we would have business people pairing with Native Studies, psychology majors who would minor in Native Studies, you know, it gives, it gives a really good background in that way. So here uh, uh, now at Portland State, we're, I'm really working to sort of broaden that and what we have there um, there are nine tribal nations in Oregon and Portland is a relocation city so it has a, the ninth largest native population in the country uh, there are a lot of tribes come there what we're able to do is work with like you know with like tri-county and metro and all of these things and we are able to have students coming out of our program working then directly for the city or for the county um, you know on watershed issues and and, and a variety of uh, uh, particular environmental uh, issues and, and sciences so mm. it's really it's that kind of discipline as we sort of are, are broadening and maturing uh, we're finding that it's really helpful in a lot of professional situations well we've reached the uh, end of our conversation. Ted Van Alst is Associate Professor and Director of Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State University. The book is Sacred Smokes. Uh, Ted Van Alst, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's been a real pleasure for me, too. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. You can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. It's carnival time for feasting and toasting, dancing and prancing, masking and merriment, from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean, West Africa to Brazil. And here in the Gulf South, we've got Mardi Gras music, plus conversation with Maroon Queen Risi, and feathers and funk with Chawa on American Roots from PRX. Saturday evening at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Thompson Premier Lighting and Appliance for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. We would also like to thank our listeners and members. Remember, you can now listen and contribute on our new UPR app.